If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. It's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. So we've had quite a few messages from people wanting to know when we're going to release the live show, and well, we're not. Well, at least not the audio, because something happened in the booth when they were recording, and the file is corrupt. As far as we know, we have been told that there is someone that we can reach out to that may be able to help us, but we're currently refusing to do that because we think we know everything about audio. She's talking about me, is what she's doing. I haven't reached out to him yet. Um I will, though. I, I will do that. <laughs> However, uh, our friend Amber, who accompanied us to the uh, to the show, videoed it on her cell phone, and it's surprisingly watchable. It's for, actually not horrible. It's not bad at all. I yes. mean, the audio is not good enough to release as just a, a podcast, but with the video, it's definitely watchable, and I'm cleaning it up right now kind of tacking the pieces together and we're trying to decide how we're going to make that available to you. Yeah. Um, I, I, I can't say that it's the best piece of video I've no. ever watched, but uh, it's definitely watchable. And it's not shaky. You know, she did a really she did good such job. A good job. Kept it very, very steady the whole time. But, you know, it's a cell phone video, so it, it is what it is. It is high def, which is nice. Well done, Amber. Yes. Donations to Amber can be sent to. <laughs> we'll uh, we'll let you know when that's available. Shouldn't be too long. Hold on, there's a bird. Stop being distracted. We're doing a podcast. What kind of bird is that? Always oh, cleaning his wings. <laughs> I should have mentioned that maybe putting a bird feeder right outside the window where we podcast wasn't a good idea. It's distracting to you. I think it's a morning dove. Okay. Anyway, you go first. Oh. <laughs> Um, yeah, okay. 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 Um, what's he doing? <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Um, yes. Here we go. Today we're going to talk about chess boxing. Chess boxing. Oh, chess. I thought you said chest. 
Not chest. Chest boxing. That's chest. a whole other thing. Right. Yeah. 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 Um. Well, that could go in a lot of directions, it couldn't it? certainly could. Yeah. yeah. No, chest boxing. Okay. It, it is exactly what you think it might be. It's a hybrid sport that combines two very traditional pastimes. I think we mentioned this briefly once in A Thing in the Middle. We were talking about weird sports and ch- wasn't chess boxing one of chess them? Chess boxing came up in A Thing in the Middle and also I believe it came up during my Extreme Ironing episode. Oh, yeah. Okay, good. So it makes sense that you want to do a full episode on it. Obviously. <laughs> yes. Chess boxing. So, okay. Chess, obviously a very cerebral board game um, and boxing, very physical sport. Uh, The competitors fight in alternating rounds of chess and boxing, both inside a ring. So it's not the same time. They don't like rook to pawn three and then get up and punch the guy. No. Because that would be entertaining. Sure. I mean, it's it's very similar to that, though. I mean, it's not that's not that outside of the realm of what actually happens. Okay, what actually happens. Okay, so. 1992, there was a comic uh, called Freud Equator, written by French comic book artist Enki Bilal, and that portrays a chess boxing world championship. And in the comic book version, the opponents fight an entire boxing match before they face each other in a game of chess. (laughs) Now, a Dutch performance artist named Lepe Rubing He found this arrangement to be impractical, and he developed the idea a little further until it turned into the competitive sport that chess boxing is today, with alternating rounds of chess and boxing and a detailed set of rules and regulations. But they start with the boxing and then go to the chess? At least initially, that was what the the idea was? The idea was that you'd play, you'd play, uh, you'd uh, box an entire boxing match. And then you would sit down. And then you would sit down and play a game of chess. And bleed on your bishop. Yes. That's not a good way bleed to do it. Bleed on your bishop sounds like something, like some sort of horrible sex act. That so, so does chest boxing. Che- that's true too. Mm. Yeah. Ah, uh, the next album from Lion to the Dying. <laughs> Bleeding on the bishop. According to ChessBoxingGlobal.com, chess boxing is a rare blend of contrasting skills. The athlete combines a powerful body with a sharp mind and rises above mindless muscle. In the ring, the fighter is fueled by testosterone, adrenaline, and skill. Three minutes later, he changes battlegrounds. The contender has only seconds to restrain his fighting instinct and move into the silent logic of his mind. Chess boxers need smartness for solving problems. They must anticipate their opponent's moves in the ring as well as on the board. It is the only sport in which the heart, mind, and body perform in total harmony. This is the ultimate battle. I still think they should they should do it simultaneously. You know, you've got a chest match going, you make a move, and then the guy who makes the move gets to throw a punch. I think that that leaves too many items inside a boxing ring. That, that's that true. Leads, you might knock the board over. Right? Yeah, that's a good point. And what if, you you know, the one opponent still has a like a piece in his hand, one of the kings or queens, that's going to that's gonna jam right into his palm. Right. It's not going to feel good. Right. And in theory, one could take like the queen mm-hmm. and stick Kinda it Kind of like between, brass knuckles. Yeah, stick it between your fingers. Right. Like I do with keys in a parking lot. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, how do you score that? 
can't. No. Uh, the battle consists of 11 alternating rounds of chess and boxing. And I, like I said, I don't think it's as separate as you think it is. Okay. Each round only lasts three minutes. And then immediately they go back into the other sport. Okay. All right. The six rounds of chess comprise a total of 18 minutes, giving a total of nine minutes on the clock for each player. The fighters win by knockout, by checkmate, by the judge's decision, or if the opponent exceeds the time limit. They should combine the terminology, you know, make it like a a technical checkmate instead of a technical knockout. A TKO would be a TCM, technical checkmate. Oh, I see. Yeah. See, I don't know enough of the terminology, I guess, of boxing to be able to make that funny. It's probably not funny anyway. Hit, hit <laughs> jab, pawn jab. Well done. <laughs> it's like you just gave birth. Now you're all out of breath. Oh, that one hurt. So an earlier version of combining chess and boxing was said to have taken place in a boxing club outside London in the late 1970s. Hmm. The Robinson brothers were in the habit of playing a round of chess against each other after a training session at their boxing club, but no direct correlation can be made between the Robinson brothers' chess playing and what is now chess boxing. Uh, The same goes for the Kung Fu movie, The Mystery of Chess Boxing, which was made in 1979. Can we please watch that? Mm -hmm. As well as the Wu-Tang Clan song, The Mystery of Chess Boxing. Wu-Tang Clan did a song about it, or a song referencing chess boxing. A song called The Mystery of Chess Boxing. Okay. The first chess boxing competition took place in Berlin, in 2003. That same year, the World Championship fight was held for the first time in Amsterdam in cooperation with the Dutch Boxing Association as well as the Dutch Chess Federation and the newly formed World Chess Boxing Organization, WCBO. So the world's first chess boxing fight between Jean-Louis Venstra and Lepe Rubing was fought in Amsterdam and was won by Rubing. The historic event was watched by over a thousand fascinated spectators. And sport the sport had taken on a new level for sure. They came to watch it live. This wasn't like a pay-per-view event. It That's was, right. Yeah. They came to watch it live. Although I would pay to view that. I absolutely would too. Yeah. Lepe Rubing's description of his first public fight. <clears throat> I've been fighting for 45 minutes and I was ready to drop. I mobilized every cell and every nerve ending in my body and landed a punch. I could see him struggling to find a corner. All I needed was another hit for victory. Then the bell rang and the boxing round ended. I wanted to scream and the next thing I saw was the chess table in the ring. (laughs) And the final round had really begun. That's magical. Isn't that wonderful? That's magical. Suddenly, I have an extraordinary interest in ring sports. (laughs) In 2011 and 2012, the WCBO made great strides in its development, expanding into India and Asia. In the States, the USA Chess Boxing Organization was founded, and the European movement was being reinforced by the foundation of the Italian Chess Boxing Federation in 2012. Wow. Yeah, we have a USA chess boxing organization. I am so proud of our country right now. I am gazing into nothingness with my hands on my hips and a sense of pride in my heart patriotism is swelling in the heart of the american podcasters right now 
WCBO uh, became registered under German law in 2014, and the chess boxing global marketing organization called Chess Boxing Global was founded. That, as of May of 2013, is responsible for organizing all of the professional chess boxing fights worldwide, and above all, for the organization of the Chess Boxing World Championships. So if you win, do you get like a, a, a championship belt like this, they do in boxing or a trophy like you would get in chess? This is a great question. I do not know. Maybe they combine the two and it's a it's a trophy you wear around your waist. That's a great idea and sounds very much like a strap-on. Like Again, the most awkwardly yeah. shaped, yeah. awful, sure. painful. Unless it, you know, it's, it's a, it has a bishop on the top of it. Hmm. Yeah. Oh. No, Okay. The current minimum requirements to fight in a chess boxing global event include an ELO rating of 1600, which, as we all know, is something to do with chess. Not the electric light orchestra. That's right. Okay. Um, And a record of at least 50 amateur bouts fought in boxing or another similar martial art. So you can go from some other martial art into chess boxing if your chess skills are strong enough. Okay. So... It could be like a mixed martial arts slash chess match. No, like, no. Like a kickboxer could no, come no. in. And... A kickboxer can come in, but he has to be a boxer in that ring. Okay, he can't kick. That's right. Okay. So he his skills don't change the game. Okay. He just is able to bring his his skills into the game. What Does about, that make sense? Okay, so no MMAs. No, no. Okay. No. I mean, you can be an MMA fighter and just... also partake in chess boxing, but you have to box. Okay, gotcha. In order to train these skills, a specialized chess boxing training session is used. Yeah. Physical interval training forms are combined with blitz or speed chess games. Thereby, the fighters adapt a rhythm of chess boxing. For instance, there are exercises like track chess or stair chess, in which training partners will play an 18-minute game of speed chess over six rounds with intensive running exercises oh in between, oh such as 400-meter sprints or stair sprints. Other common methods of training combine speed chess games with strength exercises like push-ups. The classic chess boxing training is box sparring combined with a game of speed chess. Okay. So like that's the basic and then they expand from there. They work their way up. Right. It's good to start slow. Oh, sure. And and build up your tolerance. To speed chess. Yes. Yeah. There's actually a feature length documentary about chess boxing entitled Chess Boxing, The King's Discipline. (laughs) which follows the development of the sport over a span of three years, as promoters in Berlin, London, and Los Angeles attempt to bring their differing visions for the sport to the mainstream audience. Now I'd like to take a moment and acknowledge some of the current chess boxing champions. Oh, yes, please do. Do they have a Hall of Fame yet, or is it too early? I think it's too soon. Okay. Yeah. The current world amateur chess boxing champion is Jeet Patel. He's from India. Mm-hmm. WCBO world champion, Nikolai, the chairman, Sazen. Do they have different weight classes? They do. No kidding. Yeah. Nikolai, by the way, or the chairman, is from Russia. In the European Chess Boxing Union, Italy dominates. And in the UK, England uh, brings Tim Wolger and Andy the Rock Costello to the ring. Then there's the light heavyweight champions, middleweight and lightweight as well. All Equally as important in my mind. Sure. Oh, yeah. Uh, in the chess boxing ring. Right, right, right. 
though a lot of them have very uh, difficult to pronounce names. So uh, congrats all. <laughs> yes. Well done. You chess boxing fools. So that's chess boxing. Um, I hope that you found this to be educational. I did. And enlightening. And maybe will have spurred a chess boxer in the heart of you. Well, that would be amazing. I wonder if we could sponsor a fighter slash. Uh... Oh, my gosh. If anyone listening is like partakes in chess boxing, please send us everything that you've ever done yeah. ever. Yeah. I want your photos. I want information about your ma- matches. Mm-hmm. Your- yeah. I guess that would be fight matches. Fight. It's, a boxing yeah. still a match, it's right? It's a match. Yeah. yeah. A chess match in a, in a boxing. I feel like boxing is also a match, right? I guess so. Yeah. yeah. It would be. Your, ma- yeah. your matches. Yeah. Your matches. <sighs> also, I want you to answer this question for me. Do you get to take your gloves off after you've boxed, before you have to move the chess pieces, <laughs> because that would make it really challenging. No, that's I. I do appreciate your interest in changing the sport, um, but yes, they they do take their their gloves off. Okay. There, we. I mean, we're gonna watch this documentary. Oh yes, we are. <laughs> right after we're done with this episode, <laughs> so we're gonna be watching. We're gonna it. learn a lot about it. It's the part of the podcast that bakes for fifteen minutes at four hundred degrees. And smells vaguely of venison and leftover cabbage. This is That Thing in the Middle. Today's story comes from Strange History, a book you'll find on our Goodreads page. Politicians need to be thick-skinned, right? That may explain why, in 1958, a rhinoceros was elected to serve on Sao Paulo, Brazil's city council. With a population of three million, the city was suffering from unpaved streets, open sewers, food shortages, and rampant inflation. But officials had ignored these issues for years. So when the city council elections were held, a group of fed-up college students decided to nominate Kakariko, a female rhino living at the Sao Paulo Zoo. Part of the attraction might have been that her name means garbage in Portuguese. In all, 540 candidates, including many well-known incumbents, participated in the election. But voters were so eager to embarrass the failed city government that Kakariko won easily with a spectacular 100,000 votes. And even though she was disqualified for serving, the rhino's big win made news around the world. Better a rhinoceros than an ass, a voter explained, and the quote made Time magazine. Kakariko's election left a legacy. Today in Brazil, a protest vote is known as a vote Kakariko. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. 
When I was a kid, I had expected chores and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parenting kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids and they live about 3,000 miles away and my daughter is expecting a child and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. The only podcast that once shot a man for snoring too loud and wound up a New York sports writer. This is The Box of Oddities. Finally starting to get caught up on some of the emails. We got this one. I I wanted to share this. It comes from Emily. Uh, She said, hey, guys, just wanted to send a quick note about your podcast. I love it. I discovered it listening to Jim Harold's Campfire. By the way, uh, thanks to Jim Harold. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, I even bought a secret flesh colored earbud. So I can listen to you at work undetected. I love it so much. I'm listening from the beginning and I'm up to episode 16. I'm trying to catch up. I feel like you are my people. No one understands my denture collection. (laughs) (laughs) Or my grandma's large gallstone that I keep. Or my pet tarantula. No, not even my husband. I love you guys. Thanks for being you and just want want you to know that uh, I about shit my pants laughing when you played Cat Warming Up before episode 15. I vaguely remember that. Sort of. Uh, (laughs) I was driving to work and I almost died. Uh, Emily from Chicagoland. P.S. I recognize all my sentences end with an exclamation point. <laughs> Yay, box of oddities. That is exclamation how, point. <laughs> that's how I write, too. I notice I yeah. have to go back in and edit out exclamation I, points. I'm the same way. Yeah. I don't Even know, like, hello, exclamation point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I really got to curb that. We, I think we both do. <laughs> it's just we're excited people is yeah. all. Thank you so much uh, for sending us that email. And uh, to everyone who, you know, we, we just... Just, 
we've been so overwhelmed with messages and such. It's hard to to respond to everyone. We do try, but there's just no way. We we just can't. Um, so if I give you a thumbs up at some point yeah. or a little heart emoji, please know that means I love you and I appreciate your message. I'm just very, very tired. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And we read everyone. Mm-hmm. We read every email, every comment, every text, every all everything. And also, um, oh, we try to. Yeah, I think between the two of us, we do a pretty good job. Okay, fine. Yeah, I think so. Anywhoozle, here's what I got for you okay. today. Siberian summers they don't last very long. Sure. Um, the snow often will will last until May, and the cold weather returns again in September. Mm. Kind of like where we are in Maine. Very similar to Maine. Yes. Yep. There's an area called the Tega, and it's endless miles of pine trees and a birch forest and it's scattered with uh hungry wolves and it's it's a desolate area mm-hmm. this is a, this is according to smithsonian.com it's the last and the greatest of earth's wilderness it stretches from the furthest tip of russia's arctic regions as far south as mongolia a good portion of it has never been explored that's very interesting. Um, I feel like a little bit of what you just said was hyperbole, but I will let it go for okay. artistic sake. All right, thanks. Because it did paint a beautiful picture. Thank you so much. Now, when the warm days do arrive, though, yes, the tega starts to bloom. And for a few months, it's really quite a beautiful and welcoming place. And that's when we send scientists in to pretty much destroy it. To mess with stuff. Yeah, to to dig up uh, and mine minerals and things of that nature. Very interesting to me. I remember not long ago we watched a documentary that talked about the the flowers that can bloom there mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. how magical they are because they they essentially die and then they're like, oh, hey, son, yeah. cool, I'm they, back. And they come and they come right back. Yeah. Siberia is the source of most of Russia's oil and mineral resources. Mm-hmm. It is still so vastly unexplored that uh, it could swallow a whole army of explorers and they would never be able to find them. I'm sorry. Are you are you just creating this picture of how this place is undiscovered and uh, there could be Sasquatch there? I mean, are you going to are you heading to Sasquatch? <laughs> no, I'm not rapidly speeding towards Sasquatch town. I, f- I feel like you're painting a picture for Sasquatch we're, land. We're going to go to Yeti town. Uh, <laughs> no, no, we're not. But in the summer of 1978, a helicopter was sent to uh, hover over a, a vast unexplored area to find a, a spot that they could land and bring in geologists uh, into this thickly wooded valley of uh, the Abakan, it's called. That's a river area. It's a very narrow river, but it is very dangerous. Uh, The river is extremely fast moving. It's referred to as a seething ribbon of water. Uh, The valley walls are narrow. The sides are too close in many cases to get in there without the help of a helicopter. Okay. So I'm picturing like a crevasse kind of situation. It's very much like that. This is the area that they were going into. Okay. So the pilot's looking through the windshield of the helicopter Mm -hmm. to try to find a landing spot, and he sees something that he thinks should not be there. Okay. It was a clearing about 6,000 feet up the mountainside, wedged between a pine and a birch forest, And the land looked like it had been scored with long, dark furrows. 
the helicopter crew made several passes before they concluded, and, and reluctantly so because they didn't want to believe this, that this was evidence of human habitation. It was a garden uh, from the size and the shape of the clearing that must have been there for a very, very long time. And this is an area about 150 miles from the nearest civilization. Wow. And when I say civilization, I mean small cluster Sparse. of explorers. Yeah. This is way the hell out in the middle of nowhere. It was a pretty astounding discovery. Sure. The Soviet authorities had no records of anyone living in this district. This was an area that had never been explored before. This is off the grid. It is way <laughs> off the grid. So they drop off the four scientists in this district, and they're prospecting for iron ore. And they were told by the pilots what they had seen on their, on their previous flight. Mm-hmm. And they said, you know, it's probably safer to deal with wild animals out here than it would be to run across a human being. Because if they're way the hell out here, who knows why they're way the hell out here or how they're going to react. And, right. you know, they must be running from something. There are so many questions. And the are they, I mean... Okay. No, you have more to say. Go ahead. (laughs) They dropped the geologists in an area, uh, their temporary base camp. It's about 10 miles away from where the scientists had uh, described where this this clearing was. Okay. So the geologists, one in particular, whose name was Galina Pismanskova, she said they, quote, chose a fine day, put gifts in our packs for our prospective friends. Though she also recalled that she didn't know what to expect, so she made sure that she uh, had loaded her pistol. Sure. And it was hanging at her side. So they scrambled up the mountainside. Again, like I said, it was about 10 miles from where the sighting had been. Uh, They headed for the spot pinpointed by the pilots, uh, and they started to come across signs of human activity, a rough path, a staff, a log laid across a stream as a rudimentary bridge. Mm -hmm. And finally, they found a small shed filled with birch bark containers with cut up dried potatoes inside. Oh, my goodness. Pismenskaya said beside a live stream, there was a dwelling. It was blackened by time and rain. The hut was piled up on all sides with tega rubbish, bark and poles and planks. If it hadn't been for a window the size of my backpack, it would have been hard to believe that people actually lived there. But they did. No doubt about it. Our arrival had been noticed, as we could see. The low door creaked open slowly, and the figure of a very old man emerged into the light of day. Straight out of a fairy tale, she said. Barefoot, wearing a patched and repatched shirt made of sacking. He wore trousers of some material, also in patches, and had an uncombed beard. His hair was disheveled. He looked frightened and was very attentive. We had to say something, so I began with, Greetings, Grandfather. We have come for a visit. The old man didn't reply immediately. He stood there, and finally, in a very soft and uncertain voice, he said, Well, since you've traveled this far, you might as well come in. Oh, my God. So he invites them in to this cottage, I guess. It it really wasn't a cottage. They said it looked like something from the Middle Ages. It was jerry-built from whatever materials came to hand. It was not much more than a, quote, burrow, a low, soot-blackened log kennel 
that was as cold as a cellar with a floor consisting of potato peels and pine nut shells. Looking around in the dim light, they saw it consisted of one single room. It was cramped, it was musty, incredibly filthy, propped up by sagging joists, and astonishingly home to a family of five people. What? So they're standing inside, and, and she goes on to say, quote, the silence was suddenly broken by sobs and lamentations. Only then did we see the silhouettes of two women. One was in hysterics, praying, quote, this is for our sins, our sins. The other, keeping behind a post, sank slowly to the floor. The light from the little window fell through on her wide, terrified eyes, and we realized we had to get out of there as quickly as possible. We were terrifying these people. Right. So Pismenskaya led the scientists back outside hurriedly, uh, away from the hut, and retreated to a spot a few yards away, away, and they took out some of their provisions that they brought, and they just quietly sat there and began to eat. After about a half an hour, the door of the cabin slowly creaked open. The old man and his two daughters emerged. They were no longer hysterical, mm -hmm. uh, but they still seemed very frightened, sure. obviously, but curious more than, than anything else. So very warily, the three strangers began to approach the geologists and sat down with the visitors, but they rejected everything that the geologists offered them. They offered them bread, mm -hmm. tea, jam, but they always rejected it, muttering, quote, we are not allowed that. Not allowed that? Yeah. So she asks them, have you ever eaten bread? And the old man answered, I have, but they have not. They have never seen it. Now, at least his language, his ability to speak was intelligible. The daughters spoke a language distorted by a lifetime of isolation. Uh, when the sisters talked to each other, uh, she said that it sounded like a slow, blurred cooing. They clearly understood exactly what they were saying. Right. It reminds me of that movie Nell. Yes. Yeah. Tay in a wan. Tay in a wan. Anyway. Jodie Foster, everyone. Yeah. Thank you. It's my Jodie Foster. They wrapped up their visit. They didn't want to, you know, freak these people out too much, but they, they came back over several times and the full story of the family began to emerge. Okay. The old man's name was Karp Lykov, and he was a member of a fundamentalist Russian Orthodox sect called Old Believers. They worshipped in a style that had been unchanged since the 17th century. Now, Old Believers... Uh, had been persecuted since the days of Peter the Great. And Lykoff talked about it as though it had happened only yesterday. Mm -hmm. For him, Peter was a personal enemy and the Antichrist in human form. Oh, wow. A point that he insisted had been amply proved by the Tsar's campaign to modernize Russia by forcibly chopping off the beards of Christians. They kept referencing the time period around or just before World War I. Mm -hmm. They had no idea that World War II had even happened. So they, the, the world that they had left when they came to this, this location was still the world that they, I mean, it was the only world that they knew. It was the only world that they knew. <clears throat> okay. She went on to say that these centuries-old hatreds were conflated with more recent grievances. Carp was prone to complain in the same breath about a merchant who had refused to sell him 26 pounds of potatoes sometime around 1900. Oh. That 
this guy, merchants would refuse to sell them goods because they were members of this, uh, this sect. So they started um, moving further and further away from larger cities. Sure. And it got worse for the Lykov family when the atheist Bolsheviks took power. Under the Soviets, isolated old believer communities began to flee to Siberia to escape the persecution that they were enduring. Sure. And during the purges of the 1930s, with Christianity itself becoming under assault, the old man and his brother, this was in the 1930s, the old man and his brother were on the outskirts of their village, and they were kneeling down, planting crops, when a communist patrol shot his brother dead. <gasps> he responded by quickly scooping up his family and bolting into the forest. Oh, and that, that was that? They built a, uh, a shelter away from this small village in Siberia. But then they started hearing people getting closer. Mm -hmm. So they moved further into the wilderness, building a series of crude dwellings until at last they had uh, ended up in this desolate spot. Two more children were born in the wild, Dimitri in 1940 and Agafia in 1943. Neither of the youngest Lykov children had ever seen a human being who was not a member of their family. Right. Oh, my goodness. All that the two children knew of the outside world, they learned from their parents' from stories. stories. Yeah. The family's principal means of entertainment, this is what they would do. They would sit around and just tell each other the dreams that they had. All right. Yep. They just recount their dreams. That's My mom does that to me, and I <laughs> tried to explain to her on several occasions yeah. that dreams are not interesting to other people. Yeah. You need to stop doing that. Especially when you have Netflix. The Lykoff children knew that there were places called cities where humans lived and they were crammed together in tall buildings. They had heard that there were other countries other than Russia, but these were just abstract concepts to them. Sure. Wow. Their only reading matter was uh, prayer books and a Bible. And the mother taught the children how to draw and read using uh, birch sticks dipped in honeysuckle juice as a pen and ink. Oh, Wow. Now, the geologist showed the children some pictures of things, some photographs, and Agafia was shown a picture of a horse that she recognized from her mother's Bible stories. She said, quote, look, Papa, a steed. Oh, Isn't that adorable and so endearing? Yes. They were dependent solely on their own resources because when he scooped his family up and ran into the forest with them, all he took with him were the seeds that he had with him so they had to fashion birch bark galoshes in place of shoes clothes were patched and repatched until they literally fell apart then they were replaced with hemp cloth grown from some of the seeds wow that he he brought they and, and think about this when they were discovered they had been out there for 40 over 40 years Unreal. by themselves they had a couple of iron kettles that served them pretty well for a number of years, but ultimately they rotted and rusted and fell apart. They uh, made replacements out of birch bark, but obviously you can't cook things over a fire in a birch bark uh, uh, pail. Sure. So their diet changed. It became more or less just potato patties mixed with ground rye and hemp seeds. But they were near a stream. So they were able to, uh, they, a lot of berries grew there, mm -hmm. uh, and they were able to catch fish. 
but they were permanently on the edge of famine. And it wasn't until the late 50s when Dimitri reached manhood that he first started to go out and trap animals and bring back food. How are they cooking meat, though? I mean, over like a spit, maybe? Yeah, they must have been cooking it over a spit. They didn't have any weapons, so he would just dig traps or he would just chase animals until they exhausted <gasps> and then he would he would kill them. Oh my gosh. Whoa. So he developed this unbelievable strength and resistance. He it was said that he would uh, hunt barefoot in the snow. He would be gone for days and he would come back with like a small elk over his shoulders. Holy shit. In his bare feet. I'm so ashamed of myself right now. <laughs> the other day I was like out of the shower and I had to step on the, the floor out off the bath mat. And yeah. I was like, I don't like this. <laughs> and here's Dimitri running through a blizzard in his bare feet with oh, an elk geez. over his shoulders. I'm disgusting. But more often than not, there was no meat, and the diet gradually became more monotonous. Wild animals destroyed their crop of carrots. Mm. And Agafia recalled the late 50s as, quote, the hungry years. We ate rowanberry leaf. That was it. Some roots, grass, mushrooms, potato tops, and bark. We were hungry all the time. And every year we held a council to decide whether we're going to eat everything or leave some for seed. It was an ever-present danger. Um, And in 1961, it snowed in June, and the hard frost killed everything growing in their garden. They'd been reduced to eating shoes and bark. They, well, their shoes were bark. Yeah, it's true. It's just bark. Yeah. They chose to see that their children were fed, and that year, that's when the mother died of starvation. She oh gave God. up her food for for her children. The rest of the family were saved by what they regarded as a miracle. A single grain of rye sprouted in the pea patch. And the Lykovs put a fence around this one shoot of rye and guarded it zealously night and day to keep the mice and the squirrels away. At harvest time, that one spike yielded 18 grains. And from that, they painstakingly rebuilt their rye crop. Wow. That's some serious shit. Yeah. It's got to be so hard, too, to know that you have food, but you cannot eat it because you need to save it for future crop. Yeah. And you've got to, like... You know it's there. And you're hungry. Yeah. But, that, I mean, that's some serious That's mind fuckery right there. So the, the geologists got to know the Lykoff family pretty well, and they realized that they had underestimated their abilities and their intelligence. Each, each family member had a very distinct personality. Old Carp was usually delighted by the latest innovations that the scientists brought up from camp, mm-hmm. although he steadfastly refused to believe that we put man on the moon. He said, I mean, he's not alone there. A lot of people. (laughs) He said, no, that was faked by Stanley Kubrick, (laughs) which is weird because he had never heard of Stanley Kubrick. (laughs) He did believe, however, that uh, we had satellites. He said that he had noticed them as early as the 1950s when the stars began to quickly move across the sky. Carp himself came up with a theory saying people have thought something up and are sending out fires like they are stars. Oh, wow. What amazed him more than anything was a transparent cellophane package. He said, quote, Lord, what have they come up with? It's glass, but it crumples. That's adorable. That's adorable. Uh, He was a man of strong faith, and he was well into his 80s at this time. He was a little concerned that his oldest son, Savine, was a little more harsh and that 
when the time came that old man Carp passed away, that Savine would deal very harshly with with the family. He was he was worried about what would happen to his family after sure. he died when and Savine took control. Sure. Okay. So there's Savine, Elfina, Elfina, Dimitri, Carp. And there's another daughter. Natalia. Natalia. Okay. But of all of the Lykov family members, the geologist's favorite was Dimitri. He was an outdoorsman. He knew, as he called it, all of Tega's moods, the moods of the forest. Mm. He was the most curious and perhaps the most forward-looking member of the family. It was he who built the family stove. He came up with the birch bark bucket idea. So it was no surprise that he was most enraptured by the scientists' technology. Sure. They visited the scientists' camp downstream, and he was always the first one there because they had a television. And, of course, these guys had never seen anything remotely like this. Right, that must be mind-blowing. The geologists wrote, The television proved irresistible for all of them. On their rare appearances, they would invariably sit down and watch. Carp watched directly in front of the screen. Agafia watched, poking her head out from behind a door. She tried to pray away her transgression immediately whispering, crossing herself. The old man prayed afterward diligently and in one fell swoop, but he he had to get the Waltons in first. (laughs) That's just fascinating. And you can't help but think about what goes through your brain when you're encountering something like this that is so foreign to everything that you know. Like, you know, bark and potatoes. That's it. That's it. (laughs) And then all of a sudden it's like, what is MTV? Mm-hmm. I'm confused. I know, exactly. Why are her boobs so pokey? I'm confused. Now, the saddest part of this story is the rapid nature with how the entire family went into decline after they were after they reestablished contact with the outside world. In the fall of 1981, three years after the discovery, three of the four children followed their mother to the grave within just a few days of one another. What? Now, the first thing you're probably thinking is they were exposed to viruses or bacteria that their immunity had not built up a resistance to and that that killed them. But that was not the case. Both Savine and Natalia suffered from kidney failure, which was most likely uh, due to their harsh, Malnutrition. Their harsh diet. Yeah. Eating bark will do that. Dimitri died of pneumonia, which Aww. could be thought of as, okay, he was exposed to some shit and he couldn't fight it off. So that could have been due to his... Maybe. Hard to say. ...being exposed to, uh, to an outside community. His death really upset the geologists. They tried to desperately save him. They offered to call in a helicopter and, and fly him out to the hospital, but uh, he wouldn't do it. Oh, he no. said, and he whispered this just before he died, quote, a man lives for howsoever God grants. Mm. It was against their religion. He said, this is not allowed. And so he he just died of pneumonia. Yeah, I can't, I can't get on board that. Yeah. That, you know... Man has offered to, mm-hmm. you know, get you to a hospital. Yeah. And that's, you know, isn't that part of... God's plan? I mean... Yeah, it could be. I mean, that's 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 the argument for sure. Can't, can't. Nope. He was determined not to uh, abandon his family nor oh. his, his religion that he had practiced his entire life. I guess. When the three Lykoffs were buried, the geologists attempted to talk Carp and Agafia 
into leaving the forest and returning to be with relatives that they had that still existed in that village that they had left 45 years ago, 45 years prior. Mm-hmm. But they, they wouldn't hear of it. They rebuilt their old cabin. They stayed close to their old home. Carp mm. Lykoff died in his sleep on February 16th, 1988, 27 years to the day after his wife passed away. Mm. Agafia buried him on the mountain slopes with the help of the geologists, and then turned and headed back to her home. The Lord would provide, she said, um, that she was going to stay. They tried to get her to leave. They said, please come back with us. You're all alone. You're out here by yourself. And she refused to go. The geologist wrote, we looked back to wave at Agafia. She was standing by the river break like a statue. She wasn't crying. She just nodded as if to say, go on, go on. We went another kilometer and looked back. She was still standing there. A quarter of a century later, she's now in her 70s. And she still lives on that mountainside. She does not. She does. Yep. She's still alive and she's still living there. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. If you want to learn more about that, uh, there are a few books. Uh, there's the article that I caught most of this information from Smithsonian, but also Lost in Tega, One Russian Family's 50-Year Struggle for Survival and Religious Freedom in the Siberian Wilderness, New York, Doubleday, 1992. Wow. And there is a documentary on the Lykovs in Russia, which shows something of the family's isolation and their living conditions. And uh, we, we can put that link up for you on our social meds. It's called Lost in the Taiga. Wow. That is, that's an incredible story. Yeah, it really is. You want to see some pickages? Yes, I do. Thank you very much, sir. Oh, oh my gosh. There's a lot of them. That's just one. But I can kind of scroll through. That's their that's their house. Whoa. So, yeah, I'll give you those and you can pop those on the social media, too. Uh, see, in, in my head, when you were describing carp to me, I pictured like the the it's guy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but when you showed him just now, he looked kind of like a leprechaun. A little bit like the borrower family. The what? The borrowers. I don't know what that is. The classic children's book, The Borrowers. Oh, The Borrowers. Oh, the borrowers. Sorry, I'm from near Canada. It's the borrowers. Up I there. thought maybe it was about a family that burrowed. That would be the burrowers. <laughs> the borrowers. <laughs> the borrowers. Hi, the borrowers. Yeah. Anyway, there you have it. Sad but true tale. Well, it not just. I mean, not just sad. It's also incredible and it is. It's inspiring amazing. and eye-opening and uh, humbling. Um, you and I got from this the story, that part about that one grain mm. of rye. They were down to nothing. They they were eating their shoes. Yeah. They were down to nothing. They had one grain of rye. And they guarded that. And they brought it back. And they were able to recreate their entire rye crop from one blade of rye. That's how close they came to being extinguished. Mm. And they fought their way back. And that, to me, is inspiring as fuck. Yeah, agreed. So if you got one grain of rye, you can make a comeback. Right. You know? That's that's something to think about, for mm. sure. Anywho, that's what I have for you today. I loved it. Thank you so much. That was glorious. Quite a tale. Apparently, I'm horrible at um, giving instructions. Oh. Um, 
I did get a couple of messages saying that my uh, description of <laughs> our address, if you wanted to send us things, was convoluted and <laughs> terrible. <laughs> and so I'm sorry about that. Um, it, here's what it is. It's a, uh, okay, so it's a. Here we it's go a, again. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. No, it's a. It's a box yes. that you have to send things to. Right. So you would send it to Cat or or uh, JG or the box of oddities, whatever you want to address it to. And then it goes a little something like this. 499 Broadway, box 164, Bangor, Maine, 04401. Do it one more time. I bet you can't. Stop it. I worked so hard <laughs> you just did. now. You did a wonderful job. Okay. The Box of Oddities. Yep. 499 Broadway. 499 Broadway. Box 164. Box 164. Bangor, Maine. 04401. There you go. Well done, you. Thank you. Box of Oddities is available to you two times a week. Quick mention, if you uh, do listen on iTunes, if you can take the time and uh, if you so feel in your heart, you can do this and be honest with yourself. <laughs> Leave us a, a positive review. Be honest <laughs> with yourself? What does that mean? It means that uh, only if you believe that we deserve it. Oh, I see. Um a uh, five-star review and a positive uh, or five-star rating and a positive review that really helps us build the show because it helps keep us on the iTunes charts and it helps people to discover the podcast and that just helps grow things and we like growing things we do like a single stock of rye right yeah, yeah that's what I was getting at yeah that's Right. All right. We will see you Thursday. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those I report to to beseech you for assistance. The box of oddities is free. We ask but one thing of you to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.